So today we continue the impossible task of covering music in the Reformation period and to the time of Bach. Um, your title is Worship in Leipzig under J.S. Bach, or Reformation in that. Um, we'll get to a little bit of Bach, but you know, Bach's a pretty big subject in and of himself, so we'll get there eventually. But let's, um, let's open with prayer and we'll begin. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to gather together to see how you have worked in your church through your people throughout the ages. Uh, Father, thank you that you have given us songs to sing, that you have given us praise to sing, uh, that you have revealed yourself, and that we can join in song with gratitude and with wonder and with awe. Bless this time. Teach us. Grow us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So, quick uh, kind of overview of where we've been. Um, a little bit. So we view from last week. Last week we talked about the ideas of monophony, homophony, and polyphony. Uh, the idea of a single line um, of music, even embellished one way or the other. We sang a bit of organum, which is a, a set distance of pitches that move at the same time up and down. Um, we did a little bit of that. Homophony is more like we think of with regards to hymns, in that there is a melody that is supported by harmony underneath, everyone singing essentially the same text at the same time. And then polyphony, in which is um, the fact that there's a melodic idea inherent in each of the individual parts. Um, the idea that it's a more of a horizontal concept of music as opposed to a vertical. Instead of, we think more along the lines of, here's the harmony that's moving from one to the next. Polyphony is more along the lines of, here's a melodic line, here's a melodic idea, here's another melodic idea that's interweaving with that. Um, and the fact that they're sing being sung at the same time creates a harmony in the vertical sense. But that's secondary to what's going on in the vertical sense. So melody becomes more important than the idea of the resultant harmony. The harmony results from that horizontal melodic movement. And we also talked about the fact that musical notation developed between the 9th and 11th centuries. So um, what we know in terms of you know, actual practice or what things actually sounded like is a little bit iffy. Uh, also the, the, the irony of the fact that the, uh, the chant that was first notated were those things that were lesser known. Because there was this fear that they would drop out of uh, a dropout of usage and people would not remember them. The ones that were more commonly sung, everybody remembered, and so those were notated last or not notated at all. So it's, it's the, uh, one of those interesting historical things in which what we have as examples are not necessarily what would have been the most commonly used. Um, we also talked about the fact, the idea of organum leading to the Notre Dame school of adding parts. And so we've talked for several weeks the idea of a single melody and then with the Notre Dame school, um, the addition of a second part, and then a third and a fourth part, the cantus firmus, which was the original chant melody, which formed the foundation then of, of what's being sung. Um, and then the other parts you know, worked around that. Also talked about where the word tenor comes from to hold, because the melody was generally in the tenor part. And so that was, that was the chant, the melody, uh, with the other parts surrounding it. And then I just mentioned the idea of horizontal versus vertical. 
So as, as we get into our, our discussion today with regards to the Reformation and uh, some of the shifts that happened here, we're beginning to see uh, during this time period, especially with the 16th century and as it moves forward, uh, some of the hints of the ideas that became the Enlightenment um, and, and how that began to then shift and, uh, and change the focus of how we look at art. And that will be a continual theme here over the next three weeks as we see that develop into the hymnody of the 19th century next week and then in the 20th century the following week. But that began to shift things um, with regards to how people viewed creation, creativity, and uh, how they interacted with that. So remember we, were, we talked, we started with the idea that the universe is a created uh, has a created order to it, that God has been intentional in his design, uh, that those ideas can be reflective and have been reflected within the arts, and that in the past, the artists, the most successful artists, were those who were able to incorporate and understand and, and imbue their work with a reflection of those things that God has made. Beginning in, um, around this time, in the 16th century, there began to be hints that art should be considered a matter of inspiration, not of learning. So the idea of individual creativity became more to the fore. Um, the element of genius supplanted the knowledge of the rules of the art. So instead of, instead of learning the rules and understanding the rules, uh, and a, a, a genius inspiration could trump that. Um, also, the idea of, of handicraft versus the art, and we'll talk about the biblical idea of, handi of craftsmanship in a moment, um, and the difference, too, between an artisan versus an artist. So when you think about all the anonymous art of the Middle Ages, the art remains. Their name could have been on it, but it wasn't, whether it's a painting, whether it's um, architecture, whether it's a piece of music it's because they consider themselves to be an artisan, not an artist. Um, it became much more important as we move through the Romantic period and into the 19th and 20th century, the idea of who created something. For example, one of the definitions of art in the 20th century is art is what an artist does. And so the most important thing is the artist. And so whatever the artist wants to do, whatever their freedom and creativity expresses, that becomes art. Uh, that, would be, that would be an idea so foreign to um, the mindset up, to, up before, this, before this time. This is where the seeds of this begin to be sown. The idea of the inspiration becoming more important than actually learning a craft, learning to be an artisan. Quentin Faulkner in his book, Wiser Than Despair, says, The humanist movement began to recognize what previously would have been unthinkable, that individual creativity is essential to art, that the artist has a creative soul to which he must remain faithful. So that idea of being faithful to my vision, to my understanding, and if you don't get it, then you know, you're, you're outside uh, the inspiration that I have, and you just, you're, not, you know, you're not worthy of my genius. You know, that idea um, began to be sown in this time period. Along the same times, too, music was written, um, and, and the idea that it should be written and prized for its ability to express and move human passions or emotions. 
these ideas became um, written about somewhat in the 16th century and then even more so in the 17th century. In the Middle Ages, music was praised for its ability to calm emotions. So if you think about in terms of, uh, in, even in, in um, biblical times, David calming the soul of Saul, um, that became a different, the, the role of a musician, a composer, was to excite and make somebody feel something, which shifts the focus then on the individual. You know, what is it that you're feeling? What do I want you to feel? What's the emotional connection there, as opposed to I'm trying to reflect an objective order which is expressed in part of the character of God? So the focus becomes different than from, from the cosmic to the individual, and that's a significant, um, significant change. Composers exhibited both conservative and progressive tendencies, sometimes in the same work. So it's not like there's this you know, immediate break. These things then began to develop over time. But you see some of that with regards to even the change of language. Um, the term artificial was a good term. It was, it, was a, uh, it, was a, it was a praiseworthy term. If somebody was artificial, it meant that they understood the art that they were creating. They were an artifacts. They were an artisan. Uh, then it became that if something's artificial, it's bad. Along the same lines as amateur. You know, the word amateur is somebody who loves something. Um, that's the root of the word. Now it becomes amateur is somebody who's not as good as somebody who can do it better. You know, so those become uh, pejorative terms when, in fact, those were praiseworthy terms. And that leads to the whole idea of what is the biblical idea of craftsmanship. And I think we see this, especially in the, uh, the creation of the tabernacle um, in, in Exodus. That's one of the characteristics that God says that Betzael has for the establishment in the, of, the, of the artistic elements of the tabernacle. Craftsmanship is, the, is I think, biblically superior to the idea of, of, um, of um, being inventive or being new. Because to be, to be original means that you have to supplant everything that has come before. Being a craftsman takes what has been done before and builds upon it or deepens it or widens it or expresses it in a different way. To be original wipes the slate clean and begins again and again. That's one of the things we see in 20th century art. You know, the push to be original, which is why people, you know, um, they copyright colors. You know, this is the, you know, I can only use this color. This is my color. You can't use it. Um, you know, but the, the difference then becomes in, in, with regards to, you know, I'm learning and understanding what God has done in his creation and trying to express that through art. I want my students to understand that. I want them to surpass me. I want them to teach and surpass them. And, and along this lines of trajectory of, of artistic expression, we want to grow in our understanding of what it is that God has made and who he is. Um, and that takes ego out of it too, right? Because you're not trying to be you know, special and unique. And from that original standpoint, you're trying to be faithful in expressing and understanding what it is that God has made. Which is one of the things we see as well. We'll talk about this. I'll say it now just in case I forget. Bach is the last great church composer 
and the last significant composer who taught. He routinely had students that lived with him, um, that came in for lessons, and spent a lot of his energies and a lot of his time instructing the next generation of performers and composers. There's a break after him, and he's also writing primarily for the church. There's a break after him in which the art composers, the classical composers, are writing for the concert stage. They're writing for popularity's sake. Uh, and to do so, they don't necessarily want other people to do what they do. And so they don't want to create you know, a, a school of Beethoven so that people can be like Beethoven and be better than Beethoven. Beethoven wants to be the best. And he doesn't want anybody to be better than him. And so that's a whole different change in thought process in what the role of an artist is. And so this is beginning to happen in this time with regards to how people are thinking about art, how people are thinking about you know, creativity, and the influence then that that has within the context of, of music in the church. So when it comes to the Reformation, as this grows out of this time, um, Quentin Faulkner again says that the Reformation did not give birth to any radically new ideas or attitudes about music. Rather, it represents largely the reassertion of ancient attitudes and principles now redistributed along denomination lines. And what he means by that is that the ideas that we talked about before, the cosmic elements, um, the things from Boethius, from um, the, the ethical aspect of music in terms of, of playing together and being in relationship, and the soulish element in terms of the soul reflecting the cosmos, and music being a harmonious uh, bringer of peace, of shalom, of harmonizing um, concord out of discord, which we see theologically from the garden to the cross. Those things are harmony. Those things are musical. Those things have musical um, foundations. Those things are still present, but they're divided. And so as, as different denominations form through uh, the Reformation, different denominations have different emphases. And so holistically, those ideas are still there, but they're just kind of splintered. Um, and we see some of that even with the primary reformers. Uh, John Calvin, uh, 1505 to 1564, the Genevan Psalter in, uh, in 1543, he wrote, the, um, he wrote the introduction to that. And he wrote at length on his view of music in the foreword. And he quoted from Plato, and he quoted from various church fathers to support the idea that human pleasure in music uh, can lead to uh, dissoluteness and effeminacy. So some of the things that you would have thought with regards to Plato, right? That, that essentially saying, from the positive and the negative sense, music has the ability to train affections. And certain music trains affections in certain ways, and other music trains affections in other ways. Um, we still think that with, in various regards. Like, you know, you don't, you don't play a lullaby with a marching band down the street. You know, um, you, you don't... Um, you know, there's certain music that you use for a pep rally. Uh, there's certain music that you use to soothe a crying child. You know, it's not, we, we, we have that sense of the appropriateness of certain types of music for certain things to achieve a certain aim, right? They don't play rap music in the grocery store, right? They want you to spend time there. They don't want you to move to the beat and, and you know, and, and grab groceries along the way. 
so there's a, there's a reason why music, you know, we, we still have that sense of uh, that music has a purpose and affects us in particular ways. Um, but he proposed that only religious music be sung. And so kind of took away the idea of, you know, what happens outside the church, and preferably the psalms. Uh, he said that uh, melodies should be characterized by moderation, gravity, and majesty. Now, you have to realize, too, one of the things that we've said again and again is you have to take and understand what people are writing about from the times in which they're writing. And so our definition of moderation, gravity, and majesty is a little bit different than what, what he was thinking of. Um, you know, so you always have to be careful about you know, who, who you quote to support your own argument within the time in which you live. Uh, because the Genevan Psalms were known as the Genevan Jigs, they're very rhythmic. Um, they have, they, they, they're you know, much more exciting than what we think of when we think of hymns. Uh, and much more exciting than what we think of in terms of, of psalms. The whole idea of, of our hymns in which there's a word every beat um, is, is, was not what was going on then. There's a lot of syncopation. Um, there's a lot of energetic rhythms. Um, there's a lot of kind of moving parts in and there. Think of, of um, um, Low Howard Rose Air Blooming, for example. Um, not a hymn that you think of like that's a really catchy kind of you know rhythmic tune, but it is from the standpoint that it's not regular. Um, you written out there are regular beats per measure. The alto line you know says words a half beat off from what's going on. It, it has a rhythmic um, intelligence to it and beauty to it, different from crown him with many crowns, which everything is very regular. Um, those things became regularized during the, um, the late Baroque. This would not have been known in the early time of the Baroque period or here in the 1543. So these are much more rhythmic tunes than we think of. Bum, 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 would be one of the tunes from the Genevan Psalter. Um, that's much more energetic and rhythmic than we would think of. Then you have Zwingli, <clears throat> leader of the Reformation in, uh, in Zurich, Switzerland. Uh, he believed that music had no place in public worship. Period. Um, he, was, he was a musician. He was a skilled musician. But convictionally, uh, he believed that, um, that the New Testament did not advocate there being music in worship. And so therefore, no music. Um, so he dismantled organs and had them removed. He abolished singing of any sort. And for 75 years in Zurich, congregational music was banned. So for 75 years, the church in Zurich did not sing. He's also the one who advocated and instituted the idea of, of um, occasional communion that's done in silence. So much more funereal, uh, grave, um, he, now, he's, you know, he's making these decisions or trying to make these decisions uh, from principled perspectives. Um, but this is a pretty radical, radical break. Puritanism in 16th century England, uh, you have the simple, more austere worship practices. Uh, simple congregational singing. Instruments were suspect. Uh, because of their connotation with music outside of the church. 
they feared that music would distract from the word of God. 17th century English Puritans enjoyed making music at home, but they practiced simple sacred music and worship. Um, but later generations considered all musical pursuits as, quote, idle sensuousness or simply a waste of time. In one uh, volume to help train uh, up young ladies, it said, should Christians squander away so many precious hours in vanity or take pleasure in gratifying a sense that has so often been a traitor to virtue? So an interesting aspect there, and this is one of the, one of the things that happened in the, the Reformation period, with, the, with some of the excesses that had happened within the life of the church, some of the, um, you know, once again, that tension between the beautiful and glorious polyphony that we listened to last week, um, but is so removed and remote from congregational participation, uh, that, that sh this beautiful music that shows the transcendence of God that misses the imminence of God, um, this swing to being simple, uh, there was an aspect, an intentional aspect within the Reformation to fast from those things of worship so that there would be time to evaluate them. <clears throat> so it's not just, this is bad, we're not going to do this. But the initial generation was, let's take time to consider this. Let's take time to consider this and then reintroduce those, you know, how to do these things in a more appropriate biblical way as we, as we work through this. But is this, this aspect of human nature that what one generation does at a principle often becomes a mandate for the second generation. Now, I, I experienced this um, um, in my own life in a particular way in which um, my parents made some principle decisions uh, for, for you know, particular reasons. Um, I understood that that was a principle decision, but that felt to me as a prohibition. And so my attitude towards certain things changed because I saw things as evil or wrong just because they had made a principle decision to abstain. So it's one of those things that requires, you know, from generation to generation, that intentional teaching and learning. It's what we talked about last week with regards to uh, even um, with women singing in church in the early centuries. Um, you have to take the hard road of explaining things well and potentially being misunderstood. But you have to continue to teach and to educate and make sure you're standing on good principle grounds and not just making decisions that cut things off for the purpose of, of making it easier. Um, and so that's one of the things that happened. The generation of fasting turned into to legalism. Uh, you see that, though, in Puritanism with regards to um, aspects of literature, aspects of art, aspects of music, that there's this sense that anything that distracts you from the word of God or that divides your time from time that you could be spending in the word um, has an element of, of, um, of worldliness to it. And so to separate from the world, uh, to make sure that you're using, the, you know, using your time as best as possible, that time that has been redeemed, then you should you know, put off worldly pursuits of any sort. Um, that misses, that tends to miss uh, the glorious ways in which God has expressed himself through, through uh, beauty through art in those ways that then tie back into that cosmic sense. And then we have Martin Luther. Um, <clears throat> you have a quote here. You will find that from the beginning of the world, music has been instilled and implanted in all creatures, individually and collectively, for nothing is without sound or harmony, 
Music is a gift and largesse of God, not a human gift. Praise through word and music is a sermon in sound. Luther believed that music forms good character. Uh, He believed that music governs the feelings of the heart. It quiets and cheers the soul and produces fine and skillful people. Um, He also wrote, this is, yeah, I love this quote. Luther's, Luther's an amazing guy. He's just funny <laughs> in a lot of interesting ways. Um, Music is a beautiful and lovely gift of God, which has often moved and inspired me to preach with joy. St. Augustine was afflicted with scruples of conscience whenever he discovered that he had derived pleasure from music and had been made happy thereby. He was of the opinion that such joy is unrighteous and sinful. He was a fine, pious man, However, if he were living today, he would hold with us. <laughs> I love that. He's, he's one of us. You know, don't, you know, don't look too closely at that. Yeah. Um, so all the idea then of what we talked about before and the cosmic elements that, that, script, that um, God has revealed himself through the things that he has made, nature is singing. Um, therefore, the congregation needs to sing. Pastors need to be trained in singing. Luther was very much of the opinion that pastors need to be trained in music, uh, which is a beautiful idea of, of you know, musically-minded theologians as well as, as theologically-minded musicians. I think we need both. I think we've gotten away from both. Um, there's, there's a need to have skillful singing to lead that within the, the, the sense of the congregation. Um, and one of the interesting things about Luther, though, too, is that he just didn't wipe away everything. He didn't start fresh. He created a German liturgy based upon the ideas of the Mass. Uh, he utilized chant melodies as he set music for the congregation. Um, he intended the congregation to sing. He revised the liturgy along these ways. But he was, he was, his preference would have been for the worship service to be in Hebrew and Greek. So we think, you know, like Luther, German must be the must be the the speech of the people, the language of the people. Yes, um, but if they could have understood Greek and Hebrew, he would have preferred that because it's you know the language of Scripture. And in communities in which Latin was well known, in scholarly communities, Latin was okay for worship. So it wasn't just a sweeping away of of other languages just to get to the German, but where it was most commonly known, German was most acceptable, the language of the people, so that the people could participate. You know, the idea was that people needed to be learned how to read so that they could read the word of God for themselves, and they needed to be taught how to sing so that they could sing praise themselves. And it was very much of an empowering of the congregation to be full participants within the context of worship. <clears throat> so part of what happened then was the creation of, of chorales. Uh, these were harmonized songs intended to be sung by the congregation. Uh, there was a profusion of German chorales at this time, at least 25 well-known composers between the time of Luther and Bach. Um, one of the things that Bach did was not so much write um, write these melodies, but use these melodies uh, and perfect them. For example, um, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, which we often associate with Bach, uh, was written by Hans Leo Hassler. Bach used it, I think it's six times within the St. Matthew Passion, and he harmonized it in five different ways within the St. Matthew Passion. 
Um, it is one of those harmonizations that we've adopted as our version, as the general recognized version of O Sacred Head. Um, but it was it was using and perfecting that that aspect of craftsmanship, um, but but it would be a, it would have been a melody a chorale melody that the congregation knew, um, and the other the other thing is that they um, they utilized um, what's known as bar songs, not tavern songs, <laughs> but bar songs, uh, which is a German form of song. It's, it's an A A B structure. So if you think of a mighty fortress, a, a, b, you know, with with elements of a at the end, which was typical to kind of come back to that. A bar song is a song structure. So when you hear people say, "Well, Luther used you know songs of the people, secular songs," so that's not necessarily true. It was a particular type of form of song, of singing, that was well known uh, within, within Germanic lands. Um, we have 10 minutes and we haven't even gotten to Bach yet. Okay, Schutz is really important though. You gotta, especially since I put his picture on the cover. So you've got Luther, Schutz, and Bach, and, and St. Thomas Church in Leipzig. Um, Schutz did more than anybody to translate Luther's ideas of music into something that was usable by the congregation. So you've got essentially Luther, 100 years later, Schutz, 100 years later, Bach. Um, but you've got, you've got his, um, the practical ideas then shaped for worship. Strong attention to the text um, and, and to the rhetoric. There was a whole idea that there's a connection between musical concepts uh, and how that was reflected in, um, in musical notation that, that were, was connected to the literary art of rhetoric. So that certain musical ideas actually conveyed meaning with or without text. Um, and he's also one of the last composers to write modal music. Uh, he wrote liturgical music, psalm settings, passions, seven last words of Christ, etc. Music that was utilized within the context of worship, uh, but, but based upon these chorale melodies and these, um, these music, the music that people would have known. Pulling up my example here. Let's see if this will work quickly. Um, and then Bach took those ideas. That is not the one I wanted. See if I can find this. Um, Bach took those ideas and then refined them even further. So with the with the um, with the readings, the liturgical readings for each Sunday of the year, he wrote over 200 cantatas based upon the hymn of the day and the scripture of the day. And the idea of the cantatas um, was to introduce the beginning of the melody, uh, the the first verse, which would be sung. And then interspersed was that between that with solos and duets um, and other choral pieces which commented on that. So, for example, if we were to write a cantata in this way on, um, on Amazing Grace, we would sing Amazing Grace, the first verse. Uh, and then maybe the second verse, um, Through Many Dangerous Toils and Snares, would be sung by a soloist with a different harmonization, kind of a different setting. Um, and then maybe there would be a reflection on, you know, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Um, through the doyles and dangers and snares. So something that would be originally written, but getting at the theological content 
which would then lead to the final movement, about six or seven movements, in which the um, in which it was the statement of the original chorale, the original hymn, in such a way that the congregation would then join in on the final verse or so. And so you've got this structure in which you're almost a, a theological meditation, musical theological meditation on the scripture text of the day within about a 20, 15 to 20 minute period. It, that's one of Bach's greatest achievements. The difficulty is, is that um, Bach's cantatas are too long for church and too religious for the concert hall. And so they don't, they don't really have a space. Um, they don't exhibit. They don't inhabit in a performance space because of that, um, which is a shame. Because it, his um, his writing in his chorales and his cantatas are as good and better than most anything Handel wrote. They're that good. But these are these unknown gems. Not to throw Handel completely under the bus, but you know, sorry. Um, <laughs> but just that there's this whole body. This whole body of, of literature, of musical literature, written for the church um, that, that we don't know and that we don't have a place for. He was, as I said, one of the last great church composers, and his craftsmanship of taking musical ideas and taking them to um, their logical conclusion. I mean, he's the one who also, you know, he would borrow melodies, not because he was unoriginal, but because he would take other people's melodies and perfect them. Um, there was a good idea there, but maybe the other composer didn't quite do everything they could with that melody. And so he would take it and then take it a step further um, and, and kind of bring it to completion. Um, so, and, and, and some of his greatest works are not necessarily intended to be performed. They are. But they were more along the lines of the intellectual, um, devotional aspect of writing music to the glory of God that exhibited this profound understanding of the cosmic significance of music and how it could be conveyed through music um, and, and through tones, through instruments. An amazing achievement. Um, but it brought, it brought uh, congregational singing into uh, a way which was artistic, in which the congregation could participate. Um, he taught in Leipzig at the, the, uh, the St. Thomas School, which was associated with the church. Part of his job was preparing, not only writing music every week, but also preparing the musicians and the choristers. Um, so he taught at the school. He lived in the school. Um, he and his wife and second wife and I don't remember how many kids and students um, who all lived in 700 square feet at the school um, and taught students and prepared them for worship at the various churches in town, in Leipzig. Um, he died in 1750. Uh, within a generation, the, comp the complete music curriculum at the St. Thomas School was abolished. So this is the shift here. <laughs> this is the shift here between the idea that we need to prepare uh, students to know how to sing, to worship God, to prepare them to lead in worship to within 35 years, it not even being on the radar. And some of those things began to shift during his lifetime, but once he was gone, kind of the dam broke in terms of, of moving forward with a much more progressive idea of education and what was necessary and, and how time should be spent. So there's a significant shift there. And so while he's writing music for the church and this kind of this 
apex, um, it shifted dramatically. Now, one of the things, too, I think it's important to recognize is, is that the great lesson of Bach is not that we sing, need to sing more Bach. That's not a bad thing. Um, yeah, I think uh, somebody said um, only Bach can understand Bach. And there's, there's, it's, some, it's, it's um, good for the soul because you are inhabiting uh, an understanding of creation and of creativity that you wouldn't otherwise. Um, in fact, Bach has been very instrumental in evangelism in Japan because people are flocking to the ideas, the beauty of the music, and then want to know what it's about. It's somewhat analogous to a, um, an oral cathedral. You know, people walk into a cathedral space and like, what type of religion, what type of theology could create this type of space? Well, the same is true with the music of Bach. He's sometimes called the fifth evangelist for that purpose, that he, even through his music, evangelizes. But those things change dramatically from this point on. So next week we'll get into um, the hymns primarily from this point on through the 19th century and see how that shift happened. But what I wanted you to squint your eyes at would be the last page, this very fuzzy rendition of A Mighty Fortress. Um, this is, this is um, Luther's original um, rhythm and, and a better translation of the words. Just some more here. So, the, the, English, the English translation that we're most used to of a mighty fortress was done by a Unitarian in the 19th century. And so it lacks some of the, um, some of the punch, the theological punch of the original, um, as a lot of those Unitarian hymns that we sing from the 19th century do. Um, we'll talk about that next week. Um, <clears throat> so this is a more accurate, uh, more accurate translation of the text, but it also has that rhythmic element uh, that I was talking about before. So um, I'm gonna trust that we can do this together and we'll, we'll We'll fumble our way through and we'll, we'll sing it again, the first verse after we get done. And I apologize for the... Um... <laughs> for the fuzziness of it. So it begins like this, I'll give you this much. A mighty fortress is our God. So that's the, the opening rhythm and that repeats. So let's start there and let's kind of continue on. A mighty fortress is our God, a trusty shield and weapon. He helps us free from every need that hath us now o'ertaken. The old evil foe now means deadly woe. Deep guile and great might are his dread arms in flight. On earth is not his equal. Y'all are good. Sorry for the bass pitching of the, of the melody there. So altos are rejoicing. Really good. <laughs> Let's do that one more time. I won't ask you to read uh, verse two, in a, but we'll just do verse one again. Good. 
A mighty fortress is our God, a trusty shield and weapon. He helps us free from every need that hath us now or taken. The old evil foe now means deadly woe. Deep guile and great might are his dread arms in fight. On earth is not his equal. And there you see the rhythmic aspects of the chorale, uh, the bar form, A-A-B, uh, and also the, the congregational aspect of, of what he's trying to do. It is a very quick overview of music from the Reformation through Bach. Um, and as I said, we'll, we'll, talk about, um, we'll talk about music of the hymns of the 19th century. And I think we don't have time for questions. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, save those, email them to me if you have them, and I'll be happy to talk about that and, and to figure out some sort of time for additional questions as we get there. Thanks so much.